Okay, y'all, we are in Malachi. And uh, here's the goal for today, to begin Malachi. All right, that's the goal. But I want to spend some time at the beginning of, of explaining who is Malachi or who is not Malachi and when was Malachi writing and what was, how do we approach it today? Because it's an Old Testament book. And I don't know if you've ever had this temptation, but there is a temptation of all we need is the New Testament. Yes. Yes. All we, we need the New Testament. It's, it tells us all about Christ. And so if you ask me as a, a believer and you haven't been reading your Bible, where would I tell you to, to start reading? I would say major in the New Testament. That's, that's what we need. We are in the New Covenant. However, the Old Testament is really incredible. It, it lays out God's redemptive history from the beginning of everything through the New Testament all the way up to Christ. And then we get glimpses of God's people and God's kind and good interaction and and. F- um, judgment, that's probably the right word, judgment against his people whenever they're being disobedient. I mean, there, it is worth reading the Old Testament. I'm in Exodus right now myself in my own personal study, and, and it, it, it was nothing that I figured out. It was actually a, a, an older gentleman who was talking to me about Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and I told him I was, I'd been reading those, and he's like, isn't it fascinating? And I'm like, uh... I don't know. <laughs> he goes, no. Here is the mind of God for his people. Like God had to reveal himself in these ways to really clarify to them, I am a God who is so completely different that I have to communicate it in all of these ways for you to even begin to understand my holiness. And I just went, wow. Like, I never thought of that. It is, it's worth reading those. And, and so I am, I'm in Exodus and I'm looking at, at the tabernacle right now and, and I'm reading it on a plain reading surface. I'm not looking for the symbolism in it all. I'm just like, he clearly, plainly told them this is how to create his tabernacle and how he wanted to be worshipped. Like it's God himself has always, get this, this is kind of our transition. God has always spoken to his people about who he is and what he desires. And in Malachi, it's the last Old Testament prophet minus John the Baptist. Okay, so I'll I'll hopefully touch on that. If I don't touch on it today, I'll clarify it another time. But it's our last Old Testament prophet. And then there's 400 years of silence. I've always been fascinated by Malachi because here is the last prophet that we have recorded. And then God is finally, he just falls silent. And I've always wondered, what was it? After we've seen what God, how he deals, excuse me, with the Israelites and the pagan nations and Judah and Jerusalem and how he corrects them and and how he does all these. He swallows them up in pits that just open up in disobedience and then they gripe and they grumble and complain and then he provides for them and then they gripe and grumble and complain. After all of this, he finally just says some final words and then he's done. And I've always been fascinated of what happened at what point, like what was going on that God finally just said, I'm, I'm done speaking right now. So that, is a, that has always appealed to me. Talking to Jared one time, I said, do you ever read Malachi? He goes, well, this is right before Christmas. Because 
really, that's a perfect time to read Malachi because God is silent, and then we get the promise of John the Baptist. Well, you know what we celebrate at Christmas? Like we read about John the Baptist foretelling of Jesus Christ who's come, so it makes perfect sense. So I had to break out of Jared's one-year Bible plan here, and we're going to do Malachi right now. I do think that this is an important book for us. And so what I want to do is we approach it. I'm asking that you pray for me. I have never preached through one of the prophets. I'm intimidated. You should have seen my study, uh, study life this week as opposed to previous weeks whenever I'm preaching on the New Testament or more comfortable books for me, even Genesis, more comfortable. I'm sitting here looking at Malachi going, man, it's the last prophet, and then God is silent. Oh, man, I hope I don't mess this one up. But as we were moving through Philippians, this is where God kept bringing my heart back to is, Ricky, after Philippians, you're going to be going to Malachi. Then in, we're going to do this through March. And then in April, we're going, to, we're going to look at the passion of Christ all the way up to Easter. We're going to take those different parts and just make sure we understand what the passion of Christ was and what he endured on our behalf so that on Easter, we're going to celebrate his resurrection. And then after that, we're going to be in 1 Timothy, which is going to lay out for us church life again because God has clearly told us what he wants his church to look like. So here we are, we're at Malachi. Let's read our first five verses, and then I'm going to spend some time on setting the context, and, and it's going to kind of seem topical in that way, but we need to know who's speaking, why is he speaking, what's he communicating, so that everything makes sense. But I will contend with you from the beginning that though it gets heavy, how many of you actually read Malachi this week to kind of preface? Okay. If not, read it. And, and there are parts where you're just like, gosh, this is heavy. They were really messing this up. Um, underlying all of that is God's deep love for us. So here's how Malachi begins. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And I, I preach at the ESV, so slight difference in language. I have loved you says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? This is God's response. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Verse 5, your own eye shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Okay, so we've started it. Like That was the goal. We wanted to start Malachi. We've started it. I get another week to study, and then we're going to keep pushing through. But we will, we're, we're going to, let's understand who this is first. Number one, like just set the context. This always matters, by the way. You need to know who's speaking, to whom are they speaking, like, what's the occasion, and then what are they saying, and then for us today, why does that even matter? So, I'm preaching today, next week, whenever I'm preaching, and I'm preaching on the priesthood and how they have profaned the covenant, and I'm going to explain those things, but I always want to answer this question, okay, that's what they were doing, why does this even matter? Like, why today, as we sit here, why does this Old Testament prophet book, why does this matter today to kind of bring it to us as best as I possibly can? Um, whenever uh, Andy's preaching as a, an, on a portion in Malachi, 
He's going to preach it. We're going to put it in context, but then answering that very clear question, why does this matter to us today? That's incredibly important. Okay, so who is Malachi? I love this answer. We don't really know, okay? We don't really know who Malachi is. So let me cover the, the conversation as it is right now. Number one, there may have been a person named Malachi. It's very possible. I don't have a problem with it. If I get to heaven and I'm walking through the streets and this guy walks up and says, hey, I'm the prophet Malachi, I'm going to be like, we preach through you. That's wonderful. So I have no problem if there is a true, genuine Malachi. So there is that possibility. Other scholars, though, highlight that the name Malachi as a prophet, as a person, is never mentioned anywhere else throughout Scripture or the references to Scripture. So there's no historical Malachi that we can actually look back and find other records of, like we can Paul and Peter and Isaiah. So they say that, that it's not a real Malachi. But get this, the word Malachi in and of itself means my messenger. So the name Malachi means my messenger. Malik is messenger, and then the, the personal uh, pronoun I means my. And so that is my messenger. So there was either a real Malachi whose name translated into my messenger or there was not a real person named Malachi, but this was a title given to someone who wrote this who was a very real person, and their name meant my messenger. I don't think that this is a discrepancy. I think that this gives us great confidence because it doesn't matter to me if the person's name was really Malachi or if it was someone who adopted the name Malachi for the sake of this prophetic writing. What matters is whoever this Malachi was, he was God's messenger. He's communicating God's message to God's people. The man does not matter. The message does. Okay? So wherever we fall in that, as you're doing your historical study, you're going to find scholars lean one way or the other. In the end, I kind of just go, I don't think that matters. I think what matters is does it change the message if one of those, those variables don't change the message. God gives a message to his people. The man itself doesn't matter. The message does. Y'all with me on that? So who is Malachi? Honestly, truthfully, we don't know the person himself, but we know this is God's messenger. That Malachi means my messenger. So we need to listen to God's messenger. Okay? Who was his audience? This is really important because if you don't understand this, then we might not understand. They're going to question. They're going to say, how have you loved us? Right? I don't know if you've ever been there, but you're praying and you're like, God, do you really hear my voice? Do you really love me? Like, if you've ever been there, it's probably because you're going through a season where you're in hurt or you've come back from hurt. When days are really dark and nights are even longer, whenever you're, you're doing, as David says, where you're crying into your pillow all night long. Like, if all those things are occurring, sometimes you feel like, does God love me? And if so, why do you even listen to me, God? Like, they're coming from a place of hurt. Okay, so the audience for Malachi... These were, we can say it one of two ways. The, the fancy way is these are the post-exilic Jews. They are post-exilic. They're coming back from the Babylonian exile. We don't talk like that in Arkansas, so let me phrase it this way. These are the Jews that God has sent into Babylonian exile. Because of the Jews' disobedience, remember, Babylon was allowed by God to invade and take captive the Jews and then take them back to Babylon, and their temple was completely destroyed they were in exile in Babylon. Now they have come back, all right? So they are post-exile Jews. And so what this means for them is 
if from the beginning God said, you are my people and I'm taking you to a land of milk and honey and I will always be with you and I will never leave nor forsake you. And then they are overcome by Babylon. They are taken into exile and then they come back and everything is absolutely destroyed and they have been a broken people. They're sitting there going, God, I thought you were for us. They're coming from that perspective. Now, keep in mind, God did this to them because of their sin. They, went to, they were brought into exile, or sorry, taken into exile, brought under Babylonian rule, temple destroyed, walls broken down because of their sin, because of their disobedience. So God judges them. And that's what we're going to see is that a right reading of Scripture is God is holy and might, mighty and just. Sorry for that stutter there. And he does deeply love his people, but he so deeply loves them that he will discipline them to bring about righteousness and never allow his name to be defamed. So he allows his people, he brings judgment on them, and he sends them into exile. But y'all, they, uh, they've been in exile. They've been brought back. The temple has been rebuilt and restored. At the same time, it's not the same glory and the priests are not holding it to the same esteem as they did in the original temple. Basically, they're broken people. They're disheartened. They're cynical. They're confused. They're saying to him, God, if you love us, then why has all of this happened? If you are a good God, why have we been broken like this? And so Malachi is speaking into that. Y'all with me? It helps to understand that context. That they are broken people. And you and I, if... If not already, we will face seasons of brokenness. But I also think it's interesting to look at, even though he says, I love you, and they say, how in the world have you proven your love to us? That there is that temptation to forget God's goodness. What was his message? This is the part I love. I really love what is his message. We are going to hit on major themes in this book. God's unchanging nature. Brownie alluded to that. Like if you read Malachi and you, you just kind of read it collectively as a whole and you dwell on it, then God says, my name will be known. My glory will be known even beyond the borders of Israel. You will, everybody will know who I am, that I'm an unchanging God. Like you're going to hear that over and over. We call it the immutability of God. Like he does not change. He does not mutate. He does not, he's not morphed or, or, um, changing in, in a moment. So we're going to hear that. We're going to hear God's hatred of sin and love of holiness. Absolutely. I don't think that those are the major messages. Okay. Yes. High view of God. Yes. That God hates sin and loves holiness. But I think it says everybody look at Malachi chapter one, verse two. This, I believe, is truly the central message of Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. Like, imagine again, go back. Here's God's messenger to his people, whoever that is. And they are a broken, confused, cynical, disheartened people. And here comes God's messenger. And the very first thing that God says to them is not, you're welcome that I brought you back. Not, you shouldn't have done that. His very first word to his people through Malachi is, I have loved you. You know what you need to hear, church? He has loved you. He has loved me so 
incredibly richly. He has loved you, though you're disheartened or cynical or broken or weary. Wherever it is that you are, his message to his people is, I have loved you. I like the New Living Translation because I think it really does capture the the impetus of that. And it's this. It adds in one word. The New Living Translation says, I have always loved you. And that, I think, captures the heart of that verb. So you know what we need to hear today? He has always loved us. We might not feel like it. We look at the circumstances of life and we're thinking, God, if you love me, then why am I here? Well, because there's sin in the world and there's sin in us and he will judge sin. But there's just brokenness all around us. But one day we will know his deep love whenever we see him face to face in all of his glory and we are never apart again. At that moment, we will never doubt God's love and goodness towards us. But in the moments, in the circumstances, we do. And that's, that's going to be part of us breaking down Malachi. But I think that the central message is this. I, the holy, majestic, unchangeable God, have, have always loved you, my people that I have chosen. But keep in mind, if you've read Malachi, and, or as you read Malachi, you're going to be reading it, and you're like, okay, this is heavy stuff. You know what love demands? Love is going to be directionally towards us. It's going to be in his holiness. And while his message is, I have always loved you, this love letter is challenging too because there is an obedience by which we respond to the love of God. It is loving for him to tell us, here's what you have done wrong. It is loving for him to discipline us. Hebrews says that he disciplines us as legitimate children so that we can be holy. So the fact that we endure discipline from God is his love towards us. Doesn't always feel like it. Whenever I have to get on to my kids, they probably do not feel the love in the moment. But after discipline, and this was something that um, I believe it was in Ray Comfort's book that just one of those very obvious things, and it, I think it was in um, Dobson's Bringing Up Boys also. But after discipline, you know what you do? You come back to them and you say, But you know I love you. Like it was all out of the discipline is hard. It's necessary so that you can do what's right. But that is part of my love for you. And what you need to know is that after that moment, I love you. So take that for what it's worth. We're trying to figure out parenting too. We don't have it all right. But that was one of those moments whenever I read that in a book and it just imprinted into my mind. And my kids can tell you that after discipline, that's one of the, the things I come back and do is you understand why you got in trouble, right? Tell me. Tell me why I was upset. I don't always do that part right. The part I do right is to come back and say, regardless of all that, you know I love you, and that's never going to change. I'm proud of you. That won't change. So when was he preaching this? The chief message that we're going to, that I believe is right there, that sparks the entire book, is God says, my message to you all is, to my people is, I have always loved you. And they're the one who starts the fire. They're like, oh, Really? You love us. And then so God then clarifies his love towards them. So we will watch that. When was he preaching this? My historian's in the room. You can enjoy that so much more than I can. Uh, I read it all, and I was just like, you know, cliff note version, here you go. 420, or 450 to 420 B.C., anywhere in that range, I'm comfortable with. Here's what I like more. He was a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah. Therefore, as you are reading Nehemiah, 
in your Bible and you're reading the prophet, you can see, you're going to see these parallel themes. So Malachi was a contemporary with them. I do agree with that in my reading and understanding. So the women who have moved through Nehemiah, you're going to hear some of the same concerns through Malachi, through Ezra, through, I believe some of it's even going to be in Zechariah, but they were contemporaries, uh, um, Malachi and Nehemiah, potentially Ezra as well. So that just helps me. If you want to get into the dates and the nuances and when the temple and all, have at it. But I think for us, it's just good to know that there's some, again, that intertextuality. Malachi is not a single voice in this, that he is the last voice that we have recorded, but he was echoing what the other prophets were saying by God through them. Okay. And then this one, why does it even matter today? I want to answer why does it matter and how do we read it? And then we're going to break down verses 1 through 5 rather quickly as a way to, to kind of launch into this. Why does it matter? I've already clarified, God has always spoken to his people. He spoke all things into existence. He was in community and communion with, excuse me, with Adam and Eve and all of, all of the early generations. He meets Moses and the elders on the mountaintop. There's a really cool passage, and I believe it's in Exodus 25, that I just always forgotten. But God calls Moses and Aaron and a couple other guys and the 70 elders, and it says that they ate with God and that the floor, the ground before God was like sparkling sapphire. I never read it, but it's a picture again that God has always spoken and communed with his people, including through Malachi. But after this, he is silent for 400 years. I think that that matters to us. We don't have any recording of God speaking in this inter, what we call the intertestamental period. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this gap, and we don't have any recording of God speaking there. I think it's important then to, to see why there was silence. That's what we're going to look at. Why was there silence? We're only going to get glimpses of the answers in Malachi. But that's where Nehemiah helps us. That's where the whole council of Scripture shows us again the holiness of God and his judgment in his silence. But I hope that ultimately we get this. Why, whenever we read it, why do we read it? I'm still going to come back to this. I hope we never forget this profound truth. God says in Malachi, I have always loved you. In Isaiah 59.2, that's a good one to jot down. Actually, just go take a look at it real quick. Isaiah 59.2. So you're going to go to your left to Isaiah 59. Sorry, really powerful verse, one that we need. God says, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So there's that silence. Our sin, y'all, is going to have its impact. We might be forgiven of our sins, but there's still going to be consequences of our sin. Sometimes those consequences have all been laid completely and wholly on Jesus Christ. And then other times, the judgment has been placed on Christ, but the real consequences of the here and now are still on us. It doesn't break our union with Christ. It's the discipline that he lays upon us. But, y'all, there is a consequence for sin, though forgiven. So Isaiah 59.2 says that your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins, like my sins, 
have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. But then Malachi writes, and God stepping back in with his message after the exile, after everything, after all this judgment, God's first words to them are, I have always loved you. Just remember that, that you will face those moments. It's life in a broken world, consequences of our sin. But that's our disobedience to him, and it never negates his faithfulness to us. I have always loved you is why we need to read this. Okay, now how do we read this book? That's a little bit different. So two, two things. Oh, so humbly and oh, so eagerly. Like we're going to read this humbly and eagerly. John 17, 17, we quote it quite a bit here. That's whenever Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says, Father, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. How do you and I grow in holiness? By being in his word. His word is truth. We're to be sanctified in truth. The only way for us to be sanctified is to be in his word. I think individually we should all be striving, but corporately it should be preached so that we are all growing together. So a corporate sanctification, an individual sanctification. So we need to be humbled as we read this. Also keep in mind as we read it, 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, and you know these verses, so I'm just referring to them. But listen, all scripture, even Malachi, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So do we want to be equipped for every good work? Then we need the correction the reproof, and the encouragement of all Scripture, which has all been breathed out by God, even whenever it's talking about bullying, not bullying a young goat in its mother's milk. Still completely breathed out by God. It's God making himself known to his people and what his expectations are. So we're going to approach it humbly. I think that Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 help us know how to read this. Okay, We're either going to read it through the lens of verse 1 or through the lens of verse 2. So Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, kind of fast forward to that because I do think it helps us because here's what Satan is incredibly good at. The Spirit is good at convicting us of sins that we need to, to correct or, or repent of, and Satan is really good at laying blame where there really is no blame also, right? He's a king of deceit, and he will tell you things that are not true simply to steal your joy. So you and only you can know where you land in verses 1 and 2. All right? So all eyes on Malachi 4, verses 1 and 2. I do think that they give us a lens by which to read this. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. And we're going to explain all that later. When all of the arrogant and all of the evildoers will be stubble, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. So that's the wicked Right? The guilty, the evildoers, the sinners. That's, that's, that's a message that Malachi gave to them. But he also gave them verse 2. But for you who fear my name. Right? For those of you who call upon the name of the Lord, you love the Lord, you're striving for him, though imperfectly. For those of you who fear my name, God says, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I don't quite know what that looks like, to be quite honest. So I'm going to YouTube calves jumping from a stall. 
just to see what it looks like. But I have this idea that is this moment of exuberant joy because that which has been contained is just so free and there's rejoicing. Okay? But I've never seen it. So if you find a YouTube video of a calf leaping from a stall with joy, just send it to me. Save me the time. But you get the idea. I think that we need to read Malachi with verse 1 and verse 2 in mind. For those of us who fear the Lord, that we know that God is good and loves us, and we need to understand what was going on back here so that we don't return to it and so that we understand that God did not delight in this. However, as we read Malachi, if we do not fear the name of the Lord, we need to understand that there is a coming judgment. Christians, your judgment has been placed and paid for by Jesus Christ. The judgment that was due to us because of our sin, he has borne, the, borne on the cross and canceled the, de- the record of debt that was against us. The judgment for us has been done. But for the wicked, for those who do not fear the name of the Lord, then there is coming a day. And as you read Malachi, if you're not in Christ and you're hearing these things, then there probably is this heavy conviction and condemnation that begins to get laid on you. And that's a hard issue that I can't account for. Only you and God know the condition of your heart. But don't let Satan tell you, Christian, who loves the Lord, well, this is who you are. This is where you are messing up. You know what? If you are, say, dang it, you're right. And repent and place it upon the Lord. That's the joy we have. Okay, so I think that we do it We read it very humbly, very eagerly. Keep this in mind. Please go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and then we're going to move into Malachi. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. It might actually be verse 12 now that I'm getting it right there. So let me just flip there real quick. It's actually uh, verse 12. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if we're reading it and we say, well, I'm in Christ and, and, and man, they were really messed up back then and, and how could they do that and I would never do that, then 1 Corinthians 10, 12 is one that, that I keep right in front of me. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's a warning to us because we can deceive ourselves And we need that sobering reminder that the greatest deception for us is self-deception, and it can lead us to destruction. I can so easily deceive myself into thinking that I'm so much stronger than I am. And God's Word says, take heed if you think you're strong, unless you fall. So let's read Malachi eagerly. There's coming a day whenever we're going to be leaping like calves from the stall and the Son of Righteousness will be on us, and we will be completely whole and new, and we will never doubt God's love But in this interim, may we be very humble that this is not something that that we are maybe guilty of or leaning towards because it's always by gradual degrees that we begin to lean. And pretty soon after leaning so far, then we've abandoned the truth. So Malachi, God's messenger, speaking God's message to God's people, and his message is this, I've always loved you. Here we go. Let's take a look at our passage, verses 1 through 5. Because there's a lot going on in this short passage, I'm just going to tell you. I've been warned by at least one of the children's workers that I have to see after 
church and go home with that this cannot be a very long message. And so to, to get the substance out as quickly and aptly as possible, but you know, she can't stop me right now. So here we go. The oracle of the Lord is how this begins. The oracle of the word of the Lord to, to Israel by Malachi. The word oracle, by the way, um, another translation, you might have burden. Does anybody have burden in theirs? Okay, both valid translations, um, and it can be, and, and both are very aptly fitting. The oracle is something, hey, here's where we are, and here's what's going to happen as a result of it. We see that played out by, the, by chapter 4. The burden, I honestly think, is a better word because Malachi's heavy. And if you can imagine being Malachi, the prophet who has to go deliver this message to God's people, I don't think that he did it with a smile on his face. No pastor who really loves his people wants to give his people a really hard message that he knows that they're going to have to wrestle with and carry with them. So I think burden there is a, a probably a better, more fitting word for the nature of this. This message is, I have always loved you, but there's some correction and discipline that's got to take place and, and some understanding. So I just wanted to, to clarify that. This is a heavy message, but in the end it is so incredibly joyful. All right, what is this message? We've already clarified it. We're going to hit it again. I have loved you, says the Lord. God's opening with Israel is I have loved you. Everything that's come before now, from Adam and Eve's first sin to the deception that we see in the Israelites and even some of the patriarchs and their wives, like after all of this and after their exile and their judgment, God says, I loved you. And now look at them. To be, like the, the section, second part of verse 2, but you say, how have you loved us? This is Israel's response to God. He says, I love you. And they say, oh, really? You love us? We've been invaded, plundered, taken as prisoners into exile by our enemies, brought back to a destroyed land and temple, which we have rebuilt, but it's not the same. The glory of who we were is gone. And you say that you love us? What proof do we have? We are a broken people and you say you love us like that's the heart of that verse i think that that matters to know that that's where they're speaking from because we would have probably spoken in exactly the same way in that moment oh we would never do that i mean the israelites ricky they were they were some stubborn ignorant people weren't they i mean they just couldn't figure it out could they we wouldn't have either right if we were in the garden we would have taken the fruit. We would have eaten it because we would have desired more. But you need to understand that, that that's really what they're saying. Seriously, you, you love us? There, there's a balance in being so honest with God and how David does it and how they just did it. The way David would do it is David would voice his concerns to the Lord and then he would turn it right back into praise. They don't turn around and praise God. They just say, really, you love us? Really? Like, this is your love towards us. So there's a difference. So know that you can absolutely voice your concerns to God. You can be very real with him. But David always turned it back to praise. He always said, I lament this. I'm weary with this. I'm broken with this. My bones cry out all night. I am in anguish. And yet you are good, God. So there is a balance there. But just to put yourself there real quick. Has your love ever been questioned? 
Like, has anyone ever come to you whenever you say, I love you? Or maybe you haven't said it, you just think the tenor of your life is that, and they turn around, they're like, but, I mean, do you really love me? Like, parents have your kids ever just been like, do you love me? And, like, even though it's an innocent question, like, you still feel that of, what have I, how, how have I not shown it? Like, and you begin to lay it out. God is going to lay out his love for them, but it's going to be in a negative sense of, I've told you these things, and yet you're not doing them. Like, this is discipline. But, y'all, Satan's tactic from the beginning has always been to deceive God's people about God's goodness. Go all the way back to Adam and Eve. Satan's deceit to them was, God's not really good to you. If he was good to you, then he would have told you that this is what's going on and he's withholding from you. Like from the beginning, Satan's tactic and his most accomplished one is his deceiving of God's people. And we see it all throughout scripture. At the end of it, it comes down to, does God really love us? Does he really mean good for us? Warren Wearsby says, doubting God's love is the beginning of unbelief and disobedience. And Satan wants us to feel neglected by God. The Israelites felt neglected by God. Through their disbelief, through their disobedience, the separation begins to grow, and they feel neglected. But there will be times, just as a gentle pastoral reminder, there will be times in your life whenever you may feel neglected by God. Whenever you feel the burden of, is God even hearing my prayers? Does he really truly love me? Do not let Satan's deceit come in and cloud out what you already know. Don't doubt in the dark what you know in the light. But just hold on and and keep this in mind. You may feel one way, but feelings are fickle and faith is sure. So don't trust your feelings, trust your faith. And the Israelites are responding based on their feelings and God is going to lay out a reason for their faith by the end of this thing. Are y'all with me so far? Okay, that's the heart. That's why they would question God, though. You need to understand that to understand that God's simple message was this. I love you. That could have been all of Malachi, by the way. But they had to speak back. They had to begin to counsel and interrogate God. And so here's God's response. He says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Just for the sake of time, I'm going to tell you, you can write down Genesis 25, 21 through 23. That is where we see um, Isaac, Rebekah, um, and then I'm going to read verse 23 to you. But that's where we see Isaac and Rebekah and then the birth of Jacob and Esau. Like it's right there in Genesis 25. That's the reference point that you would want to look at if you want to see this. But as Rebekah, I'm just going to read 21 through 23 to you. Here, listen to this. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So if this is of the Lord, why is this happening? Because she's got twins, and they're fighting with one another within her. So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations, this is important, two nations are in your womb, And two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So Esau and Jacob were twins. They were twins. They both then had an equal line through Abraham to the covenantal promise. 
you don't seem like, wow, that's amazing. Okay. But they both were there before the Lord. They could both receive like what we started in Genesis and God's Abrahamic promise to bring all the nations in. And what we started, saw as that seed, this could continue through Jacob or Esau equally. They were both twins. And there is a fuller narrative that I, to be quite honest, don't understand the mystery of God in using Jacob because of the deceit that played through all that. But I am not God and he is and he's faithful and it's just what it is. Okay. But Esau should have been the one. Probably, like if we're looking at it by worldly standards, he should have probably been the one. And you know what God said to them? I've loved you. And they said, but how have you loved us? And he said, I chose Jacob. And that should have been everything for him. And right now we're going, big deal. He chose Jacob, not Esau. They were twins. You got to pick your favorite one, right? You got to have a favorite kid, so we're going to pick that one. That's not what it is at all. This is God's sovereign, by the way, Parenting advice, you do not have favorite kids. Kids who are in here, they do not have a favorite that they will tell you about. It's going to be okay. But this is God pointing out to them in Malachi that here were twins, there was equal opportunity, and by birthright, Esau should have carried that promise forward. But God says, but I chose Jacob. And Jacob is the culmination of Israel. Like So the Israel that God is speaking to right now Their lineage is Jacob himself. So whenever God says, but weren't Esau and Jacob brothers and I chose Jacob? This is God saying, just point blank, Arkansan speak here. I chose you from the beginning. I've loved you from the beginning. Even before this moment right now, even before you could ask me that question, I loved you then before you were a nation. I have loved you always. That's cool. I just, I'm blown away. And, but that's God's response to them. If we really narrow it down, I chose you from the beginning. I've loved you from the very beginning. My choosing of you is my loving of you. And I chose you and I chose to love you and you are mine. I love you. What does it mean that uh, he says, I chose Jacob and Esau I've hated? Not a good translation and understanding for us. If we go back to the languages and what is meant by choosing and hating, because it's even clear in Scripture, do not hate the Edomites, which is who Esau's people become. Like, don't have any animosity against them. It doesn't mean, like, the hatred that I would have towards an enemy who walked into this room right now. It really does come down to, I chose, I loved this one, I did not choose, I hated. That's the simplification of that language. But God says, I chose Jacob, I chose you, and, and Esau I didn't choose. And you know what I'm going to do with Esau? Or what I've done with Esau? I've laid waste his country. Like, you think you have it bad. You've come back and you've rebuilt. He will never rebuild. And though Esau, Edom, like the E-D-O-M, that is Esau's nation. So there were two within the womb. There are two nations that get laid out here. Edom will never rebuild. And even though it says it's going to rebuild, I will continue to crush it. This will be a people that I'm always against. I have let you rebuild. I love you. So he sets that context that we don't understand if we don't think through the Jacob and Esau. Are y'all still with me? Okay. Am I making that part clear enough? Is that working? Okay. All right. So I'm going to kind of walk through this where it says, I have laid waste. What, what verse is that? Three. Okay. So y'all start with me in three. I'm going to kind of add some, some comments in here to kind of clarify. I, God, have laid waste to his, Esau's, hill country and left his, Esau's, heritage to the jackals of the desert. In other words, I have destroyed Esau's country too. 
If Edom, verse 4, this is a nation begun by Esau, says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear it back down. They will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. The Edomites who were uh, Esau's descendants, they're not going to be able to rebuild. They'd be, and they ultimately become, there's, there's pagan uh, worship going on in there. But you know what I think is really cool? That if you go to Mark chapter 3, right in there, it refers to the nation of uh, Idumea, I-D-U-M-E-A. It's cool. Okay, so in Mark chapter 3, it refers to the Idumeans and how a great crowd from Idumea was following Jesus and watching him do miracles. You know what Idumea is? It's the Greek name of the Hebrew name of Edom. So even though Esau, oh, don't worry, Brooke, I'm going to do it again. Okay, so even though Esau was this other country that was not of God's chosen people and they are cast out and they're never going to be able to rebuild because God is angry with them, they become Edom. In the New Testament, Edom is the nation of Edomia, I-D-U-M-E-A. And what I thought was so incredibly cool is this. Jesus goes to Edomia and great crowds begin to follow him. Like Christ goes to the lost. He goes to the nations that are not seeking him. He does powerful works and miracles there. And it says that a great crowd continue to follow him. Like the redemption of God is for all nations beyond Malachi. That's why whenever we get to verse 5, the glory of the Lord will be known beyond Israel because God is going to begin constructing in Israel much greater than the boundaries. You and I are the result of that going out. We are brought into that redemptive scope. Okay, I'm trying my best. So if whatever I don't communicate well, we just won't post the podcast and you can come ask me later or we'll post it and I'll fill all the questions however we need to do it. But that's it. And then verse five, your own eyes shall see this. You shall say, you shall say great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Time out real quick. Do you know why, by the way, God got to choose Jacob and not Esau and why that's okay? Because the psalmist says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. This is why he can raise up a nation and bring a nation down. That's why he can change hearts, and that's why he can harden hearts. We don't get to be the judge of what God does. He's in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and it has pleased him to choose Jacob, to hate Esau, to develop and love Israel, and then to bring us into his fold. Okay, it's planned from the beginning. Now verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He says, Watch. That though the wicked do seem to prosper, watch, and you're going to see how I'm about to move. I'm going to do something that nobody else can do because I am God. And you're going to say, look at God doing what he does. Great is the Lord in all of the earth. That's going to be the resounding praise of you and I finally one day before the throne. Until then, we do not understand all the mechanisms and why the brokenness of the world in which we live. I mean, watch the news from the past week whenever it seems like wicked and evil seems to triumph and prosper even in the moment. Look at how fickle this world is whenever the stock market begins to decline because of a war that's beginning. Look at our own homes whenever everything seems fine one moment and then the next moment we don't quite know what's going on because it seems like there's been some sudden disruption. Or someone who's once healthy all of a sudden is in rapid decline and they have six months left. We don't know and the feelings of this world will lead us astray. But our faith will ultimately lead us to our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases and the Lord reigns mightily. One day we will understand it better. There's an old hymn like that and I like that. We will understand it better by and by. 
But the Lord tells them from the beginning, I love you. And they say, how do we know? And he says, watch me. Watch my love on your behalf. And one day you will proclaim that I am good. And it will far exceed the boundaries of Israel. Matthew Henry puts it like this. That those who doubt God's love to his people shall sooner or later have convincing and undeniable proofs given to them that he loves them. We may doubt in the moment, but may our doubt give way to faith. Marks 3, 7 through 10, I've already covered that. I have it in my notes here. But uh, Mark 3, 7 through 10, that's where you can see the nation of Edomia and Christ going to Esau's descendants and taking his glory there to them also. I just think it's a really cool glimpse that our God goes and he brings in. Okay, so how do we conclude this? I found a scholar. I thought he did it really, really well, and then we're done. A.E. Hill says this. This is a long quote. Do not try to write it. Just ask for my notes, and you can see it. He summarizes all of Malachi, and then we're done. The prophet Malachi preached to a diverse audience. His sermons were directed to the disillusioned, the cynical, the callous, the dishonest, the apathetic, the doubting, the skeptical, and the outright wicked in post-exilic Judah. Yet, as a sensitive pastor, Malachi offered the valentine of God's love to a disheartened people. As a lofty theologian, he instructed the people in a basic doctrinal catechism, highlighting the nature of God as a universal king, a faithful suzerain, and a righteous judge. As Yahweh's stern prophet, Micah rebukes corrupt priests and warns of the coming day of God's judgment. As a spiritual guide, he exhorted his audience to a more sincere life of worship and challenged the people to live out the ethical standards of the Mosaic Covenant. Most important, here's the, here's the final part. Most important, Malachi was Yahweh's message to Israel, and it was profoundly simple. I have always loved you, says the Lord. And cross life, so he has. So he has richly loved you. My prayer recently is, God, you are good to me, and forgive me for whenever I forget that. It's so easy to forget his love towards us. It's the sin in us. It's the Satan that's about us. But where the Israel's, Israelites said, you've always loved us, how do we know? And he says, I chose you from the beginning. Whenever we say to God, if, if this were modern day, we say, God, how do we know you loved us? He would say, I sent you my son, and he died for you. John three sixteen. Tells us that for God so loved the world that he gave his only, only begotten son. That's whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He has sent his son. And in the beginning, he began all the work that has culminated to now. I think we need Malachi. We needed to challenge us. We needed to convict us. But we also needed to confirm some of the convictions that we have as God's people that the things in this world are not right, but God is still good. And that's what we're going to see as we preach through this. Okay, it's going to get a lot heavier from here, just so you all know. This was the, this was the light one. All right, you all pray with me. Lord, you have loved me. You have loved us. You have loved your people throughout all time. Lord, may we never forget that.
May we, may, may we not be like the callous, cynical, apathetic Israel. And Lord, may we just be so humble as to say, thank you for loving me. And Lord, would you break my heart by that amazing truth yet again, over and over and over. Lord, we love you. Help us to understand your love more. Amen.